This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. I'm here today with Dan Baltic. This is Dan Baltic. Uh, and uh, I'm also, we're also here with uh, a guest today, Kevin Kautzman. Hey, thanks for having me, fellas. I'm looking forward to this. Of course, Kevin. Sure thing. And um, just to inter- uh, introduce Kevin a bit to anyone out there who may not know him, uh, Kevin's an award-winning playwright and screenwriter. Uh, he's originally from North Dakota, lives in St. Paul, Minnesota now. Um, he's got a degree in history and philosophy, but also a MFA in creative writing. Uh, and he's the writer of numerous plays, including a fantastic new play called Moderation, uh, which Dan and I watched a recording or a recording of a uh, stage reading of in advance of the conversation today. And he's also the co-host of another great podcast uh, called Art of Darkness uh, with Brad Kelly um, that uh, on, on the subject of, what would you say, Kevin, the dark side of creativity. And each week you uh, discuss a different artistic figure and their sort of dark side and how it fueled their their work. Yeah, that's it. It's a podcast about the dark side of creativity. And uh, we just did two episodes yesterday. We did uh, like a year one rec- uh, recap with an actor friend of mine, Michael Backinson. He was actually, I think, in the in the reading of moderation that you saw. He's going to be in the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he, great. Yeah, Michael's amazing. Uh, he's an actor living in New York. Uh He's on one of those most recent episodes. We just went over the last, like, the first year of the podcast to date. Uh, to date. He's going to be in the next re- uh, reading of Moderation, which is in association with the Blank Theater in L.A. They do something called the Living Room Series, but it's going to be on Zoom this year, so the only living room we'll be in will be whatever you stream <laughs> it into. Uh, that's coming out early in December, and uh, you can look for that at moderationplay.com. And, yeah, Art of Darkness is um, at Art of Dark Pod. Com. And the, the idea is we do uh, an episode uh, once a month. Um, each of us takes a turn. So Brad takes a turn. I take a, take a turn. We try to do two a month. And we walk through the life of a creative figure, an artist, a writer, somebody who affected culture. Uh, and we uh, focus on the dark side of their, of their life, the things that maybe people don't know about or that uh, make you uncomfortable to talk about. So we just did Disney last night with the great Blauergeist. So this weekend is a bit of a podcasting marathon for me uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah here we are godspeed kevin <laughs> yeah uh, godspeed yeah uh, thank and, you. And yeah moderation just we were i mean we're gonna get into it but we were blown away that uh that was an, an awesome play and uh you know both we both have experience uh watching and, and reading and writing plays and it um you don't see a lot of plays like that right now these days so well, thank our, you. Our hats uh, are off. Thank you very much. Uh, moderation is a play about social media content moderators losing their minds at work. 
And uh, it's a bit of a rip from the headlines uh, play in that if you wanna wanna look up uh, social media moderators Facebook lawsuit, you'll find all sorts of information about this. There's a very uh, fine article in The Verge that came out I think the year before last, something like that, um, that went over what was happening to these these poor content moderators. And of course they don't work for Facebook, they work for a contractor that Facebook employs uh, or utilizes because Facebook being essentially uh, fraud at scale, this horrific uh, mind control program um, that should be, um, you know, we should set it on fire in Minecraft. Uh, uh, you know, they have their, they lie about everything, right? So one of the things of uh, Facebook is, oh, our salary, our average salary is $250,000. Well, sure, if you're employed by Facebook, but they don't talk about the armies of content moderators they employ. And these poor folks were, were thrown to the wolves uh, and uh, are essentially asked without any sort of psychological help, without any counseling, without any uh, insight um, or humanity about what these people would have to be forced to see. It's shades of, um, uh, of uh, clockwork orange, right? Oh, my job is eight hours a day to watch the most horrific things that humanity puts online, to see the snuff videos, to see the, 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 the horrific uh, criminal pornography, all yeah. of it. And I thought, I wanted to write that play for a very long time because I'm a very online guy. Uh, <laughs> and one of my earlier plays was about, um, or is about online sex work. It's called, If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn. And that, that had a oh, production a in title. New York. Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, that's um, in print from Broadway Play Publishing. So if you want to read that, you can find it. Um, in any case, uh, moderation, the thing that got me to write moderation finally, that got me, uh, off my chair and into researching it, which is its own animal. Uh, I had an anonymous Twitter account for a long time that eventually got banned. That's a story all its own. Uh, but the thing that got me to start writing moderation was uh, the, a point in one of these stories about the moderators coming to believe the conspiracy <clears throat> theories they were moderating. Yeah. I thought, that's a play. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the thing I wanted to say that really impressed me and just completely engrossed me about moderation was that how just how much were in your critical crosshairs so to speak with it because you know i would be interested in enough in a play that was just about tech censorship or just about the effects of stimulating media you know just about the like the the online the effects of watching that kind of content online i'd be interested enough in a play that was just about the banality of like modern corporate culture and uh, the indignities of modern work and i would be um you know content to watch a play that sort of tack a little bit how you know a certain kind of beta white male so to speak is sort of being uh replaced <laughs> by by women uh, or by, you know, by other people who, who maybe advance a little bit more through means of affirmative action. But your play tackles all of that. So it, it just, it's, a, you know, an hour and a half watching experience. I was really impressed just, like, how much um, you were able to tackle in a way that didn't feel at all contrived. I mean, aspects of this play, you talk about the shades of clockwork orange. They're forced to watch horrific content online for a massive corporation uh, their eye movements are tracked all their clicks are tracked so it's it's almost like it felt like um speculative sci-fi but i don't know how much of it was science fiction i think that it's pretty much right from the headlines i think this kind of stuff is happening uh both in you know 
tech that you know tech industry which is very easy to hate but probably even other industries as well this kind of the, the indignities of the uh the modern workplace um so you know you were able to tackle so much uh in a in a set of given circumstances that are so real yeah. uh, and then move it towards such a great catharsis as well mm-hmm. which we'll get into i call it the sort of paul schrader style narrative of you know a certain violence building up in an otherwise passive person. Uh, and yeah, just, that's mostly just the... Wow, wow. I, what do you really think? Uh, I, mean, really, I really appreciate it uh, when you, you clearly engaged with the play and uh, it's it's all it's all there. So I'm, yeah, I'm grateful. I only realized after writing the play that it is essentially the dumb waiter is that play where they're waiting hmm. for the next thing to appear on their screens. Uh, it was quite funny to realize that, and uh, that's that's maybe a short way of saying it. It maybe feels original, and I hope it certainly feels original. But I am grounded in like a theatrical t- tradition that um, just owes a lot to the likes of Pinter and Beckett and all the rest of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I feel like what you're describing, all of those layers and those nuances and things, they it's it's because I love theater and because I've I'm so familiar with it that I feel like I have the tools and the ability and I've had many great teachers and I've been in many great theaters and, uh, uh, you know, it feels, it's one of those funny things where you, you just immerse yourself in this stuff and it it channels through you in a funny way. It's like, I don't really feel like I wrote it somehow. Uh, and I'm not being modest. It it just feels strange. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, it, it feels very, very strange. And I, and I wrote this in the before times. Uh, I was living in oh, New York wow. City. Yeah, I was living in New York City. And um, it's so strange. I've become very active in crypto. Uh, I'm, I'm very in this, uh, as, as bad as this might be for my brand, I don't care. Uh, I'm very in this uh, Floki uh, crypto, which you're going to hear a ton about. I, I saw that, yeah, mm-hmm. on your, and, your Twitter. And I became a moderator in the Floki chat. They made me a moderator. I'm a paid moderator in this chat room. So here is a strange case where someone writes this play and then lo and behold, they're doing the thing. It's very, very <laughs> odd. I didn't even ask for it. They made, and, and we don't deal with quite the level of insanity that my characters uh, deal with in moderation. But there are, there are moments where someone will say, I'm going to kill myself. And we're, we're sitting there in a chat room because they, they got hacked. Uh, or uh, they made a mistake, and they and, and we have some. There are some uh, some very special people in in <laughs> who need some. I'm sure. Yeah, some kid love. So, but it's this strange art meets reality. Like art imitates life, imitates art. So here yeah. I am. What a bizarre world. <laughs> anyway. No, no, for sure. And as you said, you're also very online. And I mean, the corner of Twitter that I guess all three of us are kind of on. Um, well, we don't have the the most horrific stuff that your characters deal with, but you know, in terms maybe some of the nine eleven conspiracy, it's it's all stuff we're familiar with. There are three. It's it's always three clicks away. Right. Always. No, that we makes can sense. get to yeah. the some of the darkest stuff on the internet in about three clicks, and it is this hovering ghost under everything that's done on the internet. It's very very strange. It's like there's the there's the Disney internet, there's the Facebook internet, there's grandma posting recipes and then there's a snuff film and it's all ah. right there 
uh, it, it's it's yeah. it, it's it's I don't know. We're not equipped to process or to deal with it. Uh, and, For sure. I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting how how much the internet has changed even in my lifetime, and how much less ostensibly free it's gotten. It's obviously much less of a place of free expression. There's much more policing that goes on in terms of tech censorship and the type of things that your characters engage in with moderation. But at the same time, the dark shit is all there still. It's just more behind the surface and you like you can't really expunge it from the internet. All you can do is keep it off of the most public-facing stuff like Twitter and Facebook. So it's like that there's this policing attempt um, that goes on, uh, that, that an attempt to sort of, especially since Trump, I think, uh, in terms of political stuff and stuff in general, perhaps, there's this attempt to control the narrative that emerges online. And I think that the bigger companies and the powers that be have made a lot of strides with regard to that in the last five years. But as you point out, the, the dark stuff, the, not even the political stuff, but Although maybe that could be part of it, but, you know, the, the snuff of it all and the, you know, deranged pornography, like, it's all still there. It's just, you know, more, more covered over. So it's this strange thing where, like, there's more policing, but also, like, the, the really toxic shit is still there. Yeah, it's there, and I think everybody knows that it's there. So it, it's like this villain outside the room. It's 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 like a shades of like a friday the 13th movie you know jason's out there uh what what's gonna summon him we don't know uh very very strange and they would have us believe all of these these companies would have us believe that they're in control right because they have to uh present as if they're in control to keep the advertisers happy because at the end of the day facebook is an advertising company that's what it is mm-hmm. it's an ad platform um google all of them that's what they do uh and um, I'm an ad man. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, yeah. Don Draper would be working at Facebook uh, or at right. Google or what, um, or Netflix uh, and so forth. Okay. They have to give the um, appearance of control. But I think one of the one of the muckraking qualities of my play moderation is that, uh, of course, they don't. Uh, there is no AI. It's it's skip logic. It's a big spreadsheet. You're in their spreadsheet. The new Facebook uh, name change is Meta. Well, of course it's Meta. That's what they want. They want your metadata. What a, by the way, what a what a POMO first year grad school <laughs> trashy name for your company. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, a boarding, boarding school MK Ultra victim who wants to. And no offense if you guys went to boarding school, but he, uh, oh. you know, or for MK Ultra victims. Yeah, right. Wow. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, yeah, as we all are. Yeah, we all uh, are. That's that's one of my central theses. theses but yeah, yeah. One thing we wanted to ask you about is. Um, the writing within the cathedral and writing things that are, um, you know, for want of a better word, based. You uh, like, I, I don't think it's, um, you know, uh, inaccurate to say that moderation is critical of lean in feminism, is critical of the, uh, indeed, of the cathedral, of this, you know, superstructure of knowledge and promulgation of you know fabricated narratives and uh this is really in some respects and i think a you know a deeply um uh i'm not going to say reactionary but uh it's a you know it's a, a right wing and you could disagree with that but take on um you know the these topics 
and my crucifix here. <laughs> and um, but you know, being able to write that in such a way that it is still you know very much uh, can be digested by mainstream audiences is that's a difficult thing. And so, and, and but that is something you need to do as a, uh, a theater writer because you know you cannot uh, produce mainstream entertainment that is not you know essentially um, uh, you know uh, allowable by the cathedral standards. So uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your process for uh, for writing, uh, as uh, Strauss would say, writing between the lines. Yeah, between the lines is critical, uh, and and everything that Matthew was saying earlier about how the play is about all of those things and potentially even more. Uh, this is what, as a young writer, you often don't understand: is that it? What it, it, I think it's a Miles Davis quote: "The mu music is the notes you don't play," something like that. Yeah, I think it's true of theater and of and of great writing it's it's what's not there it's what's not stated in addition to what's what's created i think don delillo does a an incredible job mm -hmm. of this um so yeah it's about in the theater it's about writing a blueprint i would love hopefully when we get back to well i don't want to say back to normal there was no normal before uh when things uh, open up uh I would love to see 10 different productions of moderation and see 10 different interpretations of the play. And I think a good play um, does that. And um, I will say, uh, since, we're, since we're getting Yarvin pilled here, uh, I, I, will, I will say that uh, I don't, I'm, I call it, I'm, gonna, I'm, on the, uh, the, I'm with the camp that has, has decided to call it the regime rather than the cathedral. I attend okay. mass, I attend mass at a cathedral uh, and <laughs> a literal cathedral here in St. Paul. And my, my son will be baptized there soon. And so just as a, and you could call it the cathedral. I know exactly what you mean, but I'm. I'm no, no, I, I yeah, appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, yeah. it just there was a little bit of discourse that went around, uh, you know, on that on Twitter, and everybody agreed it's the regime. Let's call it that. But we know what we're talking about—the shorthand of it. And um, I'm not yeah. trying to—I'm not some sensitive trad calf, so don't so don't like. You know, no, so. I get what you're saying. I, I may adopt that. I may adopt. Yeah, that. it's it's a little <laughs> bit like yeah. Maybe we should actually be heading into more physical spaces like churches and cathedrals and getting back to some of that. Um, but that's that's a bit of a personal. Um, uh, diatribe i guess no I, I hear you yeah um it's almost like to call it the regime is more calling it what it is too yeah. by the way like it's the cathedral's kind of coded yeah nobody uh, would like it if you started calling yeah. it the synagogue they wouldn't like that <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> right they wouldn't you'd be you, you know but this is the, the you know the church is the one of these big ancient groups that it's okay in america yeah. to still uh lambast and, and attack and i'm you know i it's it is a delightful term and i understand yarvin is using it uh in kind of like a it reminds me of borges a bit so it's a literary yes. thing um yeah, but uh, hmm, what what about the process? I wrote this play when I was living in New York City, uh, and I had been working for this as a as I'm a web developer. I run a web development company, uh, just a small company. I work exclusively with American talent. I uh, made a good career doing that. I've also started to do a little bit of technical writing, but now I'm really hard into crypto, so that might so that might be more of my focus in terms of like making money. Uh, but the I was living in New York City. I had been there for a number of years, and I had worked for a few years at one of these horrific 
consulting companies that uh, does this fling flam grifter uh, uh, diversity and equity garbage. And I saw it from the inside. I saw the sociopath um, who runs this company, who's one of the most cynical people I've ever met. They're they're getting themselves mansions and flying first class or even private jets to go around and lecture Americans on equity and inclusion uh, while they flit between London and Australia. They're not even Americans. Uh, and they, they use this country as a kind of a, a cow to, to bleed dry, to suck dry, a tax cattle on a giant plantation. And uh, I saw that firsthand. This is where the, the term bio break comes from. That was a real thing. It's used in the play. Oh my these, God. these lunatics would use that phrase. Now, I'm an, I'm an Americaner from the Midwest. Um, I speak a little bit of German. My, my uh, children are learning German. Uh, it's, my, it's my heritage. Uh, we came over here uh, in the 19th century and then the turn of the 20th century. I'm from North Dakota. Uh, somebody who leans to the left in North Dakota is to the right almost <laughs> almost anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. And that's something you slowly learn. Uh, one thing that the, the regime excels at doing is, is uh, trying to, it tries to render everything in this ridiculous binary. Well, this is a blue state. Hmm. Well, this is a red state. What? What do you mean? I, it, it, this is, it's just so, it's all like a psyop and it's all meme yeah. warfare, mimetic warfare, all up and down the line. Um, so the play, I'm, I'm trying to put myself back into the place I was. I had not written a new play for a while. Uh, I, we had adapted If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn into a TV show. I have a wonderful writing partner who's going to be directing the reading of moderation that's coming up. Her name's Abby Lucas. She's wonderful. She's a Kiwi. She lives in London. And we've cool. written, I think, like four screenplays together. We're working on a new screenplay right now, which is going to be hilarious. Um, I, but re regardless, we had, we had adapted uh, If You Start a Fire into a TV series, then into a series of web shorts that's going to be in the New Zealand Web Fest. You can find that at moneyshotshow.com. And the, the pitch of this is like, it's like if OnlyFans was kind of funny, if people were being asked to do funny, ridiculous things on OnlyFans. So it's a little bit of a comic critique of the internet and all the rest of it. Um, but I've been working on that, and I was like, okay, I've got to write a play. I've got to put myself in a position to write this play. And I went, and I did a lot of research, and I created an anonymous account on Twitter, which will remain anonymous. It no longer exists, uh, but I proceeded to go very, very hard um, down a very, very deep rabbit hole of, you talk about like our side of Twitter, the side that's three clicks further away, one or two uh -huh. clicks further away. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's not hard to find. And uh, I had that account. I made the mistake of associating it with my phone number. That account finally, <laughs> but I was, I, it's research. I was do, yeah, legitimately right. doing Dodos. research. Mm -hmm. And I went really into it. And I saw some things that I regret seeing. I kind of MK altered myself a little, uh, but this yeah. was in service of the play and legitimately, legitimately. And it was only after I, I took a trip to England um, to visit, uh, to visit Abby and to work on one of our screenplays. And just because I like, I like London a lot. I've done theater in London. It's one of my favorite great towns. city. Great city. Uh, one of my plays premiered at the Finborough theater over there. I'm hoping of course, moderation will have a life over there. And in, in any case I went over and it was only in England when 
uh, something happened, there was an incident and there was a manifesto going around <laughs> very quickly after. And I asked, I asked somebody, send a link. My account was, was killed in London like that. Oh. And so mm. very interesting. And, and then I came back and I, I sat down at my favorite bar and restaurant, uh, in, in Manhattan, Kismet, shout out to the Kismet crew. And I, this is back when I drank, I don't drink anymore, but, uh, it would just put back some vodka sodas and, and, uh, just started writing the play. Yeah. Mm. Very cool. Wow. That's uh that's quite a story. <laughs> like, uh, in terms of the real world research you did and everything, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, you kind of mentioned earlier how it almost feels like you didn't even write the play; like it just kind of came out of you. And uh, I mean, there's a there's a purity to that, I think, uh, in that that sort of creative process where you really enmesh yourself in something and then just channel it. Uh, and it seems to be that was the case with moderation. I had more than a few people. It's not the first time that this has happened in my writing life, but this was the most intense. I had a, more than a few people sort of at, like come and ask me if I was okay. <laughs> I had yeah. uh, it it prompted a breakup in a funny way that that play was really? part of a breakup uh, that also involved bill burr uh <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> we went to a comedy show it was supposed to be an all ladies night comedy show and um, bill popped in and did some time and my my ex did not see bill's set the same way i saw it so it was supposed to thank you bill uh it was, it, it, she's a love, lovely girl but we wasn't wasn't meant to be and now i'm now i'm very happily yeah. engaged and we have, we have a kid and it all works out the way it should. It all works exactly. out the way it should. But yeah, that was tough for my yeah my ex as well. Just the play was tough. It's tough. It's a tough play on people. Uh, and even so, the actors have been like, "Are you okay? Do you believe everything?" Like, "Oh, mo, mo, whoa, whoa." Because people, the problem with these plays is once you write a play like this and you hand it over to somebody, people, people are hmm, who aren't writers. They'll have they have a tendency to sort of go, "Well, you're clearly writing yourself in this play, right, Kevin?" It's like, mm, no. No, I'm not that guy. I, uh, I'm not that guy. I'm not the he character yeah, in that yeah. play. Uh, it's it's not some sort of uh, simulation of myself at all. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, crucially, you get into the voice as as we know. We wrote novels, uh, both Matt and myself, and I. I write plays, and you get into the voice of a character, and it's not you. You're, as you say, channeling. You're channeling a character, and. Um, it's, it's something that people outside of writing just don't really fully understand. That, some, that you yeah. could be so intimately familiar with the character, but yet be like, well, I don't really agree with the character's stance on this, this, and this. They'd be like, well, that's you. And it's like, well, no, it's, it's not, actually. It's, right. yeah. And I mean, in order to write compelling characters, and even compelling villains in some cases, you have to understand where they're coming from you have to give it almost like the best blush interpretation of whatever potentially unhinged or dangerous view they might have um to be pretentious about it akin to what john milton uh does in paradise lost with the satan character as a classic example you know in, in making him genuinely interesting and some would argue more interesting than um you know the good characters in that work um right, well, so you have to get under the skin but that doesn't, so, you know, in order to make good art, you have to get under the skin, but it doesn't mean you agree with it. Absolutely. And there are opportunities to do some very hardcore, very intense research. Uh, if you're writing a play about a mountain climber, you should maybe go talk to some mountain climbers, maybe go climb exactly. a hill. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it seems to me to be the most obvious thing. It's like playwrights who've uh, who've never acted or who would say, yeah. oh, I could never act. It's like, well, wait, that's like somebody who wants to write a, an opera but doesn't play the piano or doesn't play an instrument. What are you, you, you need to be in and around the theater. And even if you have exactly. extraordinary stage fright, you've got to be in the theater one way or another mm -hmm. um, to write for yeah. the theater. Yeah. That's so. my best advice well, for young playwrights is go and act. Interesting. Uh, I mean, we don't have to put this in the final version if if it's not a comfortable question, but I am curious, and not to not to be like those people who say, oh, the he character must be you, but I am a little bit curious. So you did research on, on a more extreme side of Twitter, um, but your current Twitter presence and the kind of, the, the current some of us that you associate, you know, whatever you want to call what, you know, we dub our corner of Twitter, did you come to that after delving into some of the more extreme areas and then kind of settled on... You know, our more moderate wing of things. Sure. Or you, yeah. yeah, I would say that that happened that way. But it was also, I think, a consequence of some of the people who took took interest in my account and took interest in my writing. Uh, right. The fellow who uh, helped me produce the uh, podcast version of Moderation, which you can find huh. at moderationplay.com, is itself taken from a reading that a theater company in DC did. The theater company is called Spooky Action. That was a very fine reading. It was the first Zoom reading. Uh, spooky Action comes from a quantum physics term. Uh, they did the Zoom reading. Well, then this this fellow uh, found me on Twitter and he's somewhat well-known, uh, Jeff Giese. I don't know if you know Jeff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Jeff's a fabulous guy. Uh, very, very smart, one of the smartest people I know. And uh, I'm, a I'm actually looking forward to meeting him in person. We're gonna we're gonna hang out a little later this year or early next year. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, he reached out and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm interested in art. I want to do something creative. I'm here to help produce." And so we both agreed. We both come from a bit of a tech background, so we agreed, "Let's find the MVP and get something out there right away." And so what we agreed to do was take the moderation reading from Spooky Action and adapt it into a podcast that we could release. So we, we hired a production company, they took the audio, they added some effects. And so you can find that, that's on all the platforms here Great. and there. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Jeff did uh, a good job of kind of, he introduced me to some of the, the heavies on, on that side of things. And he, he may or may not have had, told Jack at Twitter to check out the play, <laughs> stuff like that. I, I'm, I'm waiting for my teal bucks to come. They're, they're, they're somewhere here. They must be, I don't know where they are. They're in the uh, mail. Yeah, in the, my teal bucks are in the mail, uh, <laughs> if only, right? But yeah, and then that sort of naturally developed. But I would, I have, my account has been remarked upon as being very heterodox, and I'm proud of that. I don't, yeah, I don't want to be, <clears throat> there is, there is a place for people who are face cucks on Twitter. I'm one of them, and it's because I'm a writer, and I, also, just I kind of don't care. Like I, you know, yeah, and, I know you mean. yeah. yeah. and uh, I also tried the Anon thing for the research. I don't, yeah, I don't. It's it wouldn't be for me. The Anon thing was a LARP, um, and uh, you know, I have this account. It is what it is. I'm into lots of different things. I'm into. I post a lot of meat. I post a lot of barbecue stuff. I post. Uh, I just like your T-bone. Yeah, I made a T-bone. Yeah. yeah, I got I got a whole side of beef from a butcher. And but of course, what's awful about this is that's very political. If you're meat posting, you're saying a certain thing now, and I'm just like, oh, I just really like this meat. Um, meat, crypto, writing, the podcasting, kind of weird Twitter, like the Blower guys side of Twitter. I just yep. I just love the like weird fringe cool strange magical side of twitter all of that the, the accounts that i kind of there are certain 
Um, I, have, I have a nephew who's autistic, so I don't, but there are, there are, there are, I was going to say, there are like these autistic Facebook accounts where it's like, oh, here, here he is again. Oh yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> woke, woke stuff is really terrible. Okay. Yeah. yeah gotcha. I, know, I, know what you mean. I gotcha. So you're reducing your whole identity to this, but then these are, those are people who are trying to sell a book or they're trying to sell their next speaking tour or the, you know what I mean? So yeah. I don't want to be that account. I want to be myself. And I want to at least like kind of demonstrate for other people like, yeah, you can have multiple interests and be a real person on this stupid bird website. Right. Um, no, a couple things about what you said. I mean, it's for one thing. Yeah, it, it, yours is a great account. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, it, it is interesting how just how much stuff is getting kind of coded as being sort of right wing these days from from meat to crypto uh, to we were talking about before you hopped on, like even like even your podcast, Art of Darkness, like it's not. It's not a right-wing podcast, but even just to focus on the dark side and like suggest that that actually might have a positive relationship to creativity in a world where creatives and artists and public figures are told they need to be so politically correct and antiseptic in everything they do. Even that, you know, it gets coded in the, you know, you talk about weird Twitter too, this celebration uh, of like, uh, you know, uh, 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 not uh, traditional is the wrong word because it was even more like this like 30 years ago but just a a more healthy conception of creativity that you know there's a dark side to it etc and that also taps another thing i want to touch on what you said the the issue of audience uh and, and finding your audience um that taps in i think into dan and i's sort of mission for this podcast it's not necessarily that either of us are like barking right wingers but I think that both of us have, have written novels and are, you know, trying to, I publish mine, Dan is trying to publish his, etc. And, and we're, we're trying to find an audience in the world as it is. And certainly that audience isn't in the mainstream of publishing, but rather there's this hotbed of creativity online, which is, for lack of a better term, frog Twitter or dissident right Twitter or, or, or even more broad than that. It just Twitter. anybody who doesn't want to be uh, the NPR tote bag crap. Yeah. Anyone exactly. who's, who's not in the regime or of the regime, you're on our side. If you're not in that place, well, by default, you're in our place. And that ties into something that I, I wanted to hone in on, which is the way you wrote moderation. And it's similar to the way I wrote my novel in that it could be taken by people who are in the regime to be like, oh, this is uh, critical of those who would be critical of the regime and they can see what they want into it. Whereas the other people who are, you know, maybe uh, have a, a point of view that is more similar to your intended point of view, will see it and see that this is a portrayal of, you know, in, in your case, in, in moderation, him, he, a sympathetic portrayal of a guy who's cracking under the pressure of all these societal forces. And I, I think, and, and you could tell me to what extent I'm on target or off target, but part of writing between the lines for a mainstream audience is writing in such a way that both sides can see it and see what they want to see in it. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And that, but that's what the regime doesn't do. That's what yeah, they don't do. That's absolutely. why all their stuff is starting to suck so badly and why nobody really wants it. It's either yes, queen, or not at all. And it's like, well, there's something between yes, queen and and reality and art. Yeah. Yeah. And you're. this is one of the things I resent the most about 
the American theater is that it, the assumption is you're walking in as a lifelong Dem voter and anything else mm-hmm. would be psychotic. Uh, or crazy. I mean, I've, had, I've been in these rooms of, of, with theater people where it's a lot of like, well, we know and we all know you just assume because we've come into the theater uh, a certain set of things. I did an episode of Art of Darkness recently on the great Sarah Kane, the great English playwright Sarah Kane. Sarah Kane who, I saw that. Mm-hmm, and who uh, was a strong influence on me, not least because I, I spent a year over in the UK and I was in the Royal Court Theatre's Young Writers Program. And uh, my my first wife actually studied at the, the, uh, the, at the hospital where Sarah Kane hanged herself not many years before. So her ghost was sort of lingering around that scene then. She influenced a lot of my writing and uh, it was only upon revisiting it that I even sort of realized I was I had bathed myself in her presence um, and it had you know, reached out and sort of affected my writing. But in her own words, this is in the 90s, she, there's probably nobody more Gen X than, than Sarah Kane was. Uh, she, in her own writing said, uh, you know, or I think it was in an interview said, I'm, uh, you know, I don't want to be thought of as a woman writer because there's no such thing. I am yeah. what I am. I don't want to be a constellation of, you know, they, this publishing and the, re- the regime has a Pokemon mentality to the arts. You got to catch them all. So we got <laughs> yeah. to grab this guy because he has a, a funny last name that is going to da 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 and boom, 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 boom. And they're just, they're, they're playing, but there's somebody, and I've met them. They're the, these, these gatekeepers and these tastemakers behind the scenes are exactly the people you would think they are. Who are not yeah. interested in story, <clears throat> not interested. They're interested in presenting a story that reaffirms or reifies their ideology. Well, and which, <laughs> Yeah, which is, you know, not going to be an entertaining story typically. Well, they're, they're playing a meta game. You want to talk about Facebook meta, right? They're not, they're not necessarily picking your play or your, or your book for its own sake. They're picking it for how it sits on the shelf with everything else. So they're curating the entire, uh, entirety of culture. Well, is this play going to sit well but next to this play? And what does the playwright look, look like? And what do you know? They're curating a little, it's a little, uh, they're putting little tchotchkes in their collection, these arts administrators. Uh, I'm probably not doing myself any favors, but uh, <laughs> there's a quality yeah, of that. Yeah. And you meet them and they're, uh, many of them are megalomaniacs and uh, they're, they're house cats. They're, they're all about their institution and their control and their place. And I think at a certain point, the art gets lost in that. You know, the United States, um, <laughs> arts administrators get paid in the United States. Artists don't get paid in the United States. Yeah. No, you're you're definitely talking to two people who are familiar with that as well. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Not to get into work. And I'm going to but politely yeah. ask for you to delete the last three minutes of this. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. And I've worked. I've worked. Please, please leave it in. But I've I've worked with wonderful people at these institutions too, and I've had some yeah. incredible opportunities uh, as a consequence of of the writing. But we all know that there's this subtext happening, and there. There's the the frogs, right? They're boiling and boiling and boiling and boiling, and you can feel the culture moving and feel the gatekeepers clamping down and making, you know, adding more control and um, ex- excluding certain people because of some sort of bizarre agenda, uh, which you're not privy to or you're not even allowed to utter, but it's there and 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 as clear as day to everybody. But as soon as you notice it, you're some sort of a schizo a reactionary lunatic yeah. who needs to shut up. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and when it comes to demographics, like as a playwright who is a a straight white guy, you're in a minority today. 
and you, uh, you, there's a lot you can't write about, which is, you know, very, very difficult. I've had, so, I've had producers um, or different people in the theater come and tell me you should send your plays out without your first name, just send it out as K. You might have better luck, things like that. Absolutely I've had the same bizarre. said to me uh, yeah. about my, my writing that I should, because I, I wrote a play about um, that uh, touched on issues of uh, sexual violence, and uh, they said I, I should pretend I'm a woman. This is so, it's so insane. It's so, it's so crazy. It's like, read the play. Why do you need me to sell the play? And well, it even yeah, had a progressive, the death of the author. It, it essentially <laughs> had an immoral that dovetailed with their own thinking. But it, it doesn't even, make any, yeah. even that wasn't enough. It, it's so strange. Yeah. I, I think I can put myself in their mentality, but ultimately, finally, I cannot because I, I'm not a bigot. Yeah. Right. No, it's it's one of these things. Like, I, there's a lot of there's a lot of instances in which I totally understand the other side. I total I can understand the logic of communism, for example, even though I'm anti-communist. But some of the shit uh, that we're kind of talking about here with um, the modern arts, not modern art, like modern art, but contemporary art bureaucracy. I don't know. I mean, I think on some level, because you can't, like, it would be easy if it was reducible to, oh, this is just the, what the market demands, which is often how it's presented. Uh, but I think that's a lie. It's often presented like, oh, the people demand, um, you know, diverse art that, like, doesn't piss this audience off and, like, it's what we need to do. But I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think it reduces to money. I think that it's a much more, I, I know it's tired to compare wokeness to religion, but I'm still going to do it here. I think it is a much more like a spiritual or pseudo spiritual sense about what culture is supposed to be and uh, the the infiltration of politics and ideology, the politics and ideology of the regime into um, into the arts and into culture. And yeah, I mean, not to get conspiratorial about it, but I I think that you know a lot of these sort of artistic bureaucracies that exist, they're right downstream from. Um, from you know, like the Democratic establishment, Absolutely. or maybe even the Republican, you know, the, just the, the establishment the regime. Well, you, you, and, and yes, you, and the letter, you, the, you, the, letter yeah, the agencies. Yeah. You absolutely, if you're interested in this line of inquiry, uh, the Art of Darkness episode that we did last night with Blower on Disney is required listening because this is sort of one of the topics that comes up. And uh, one thing that obsesses me, and that I, I think a lot about, is wondering for how long has the money not really mattered because the the way the regime the regime presents everything is that these decisions are made driven financially principally but i think at some point we crossed a transom and the money they we know they just print the money it's it's yeah, a fugazi right. it doesn't it's all flim flam and make believe and i i think that if you look back at the history of Disney, you can see very specifically in World War II when Disney became a wing of the government. It quite literally did in World War II. It produced the most media for the United States government at that point. And if you read these books on, wow. yeah, if you read the books on the mouse uh, in, in World War II, they'll make it. The, the public facing story is sort of like, well, gosh, it was so hard and they tried so hard to get Disneyland made and they had to mortgage everything in order to go. I strongly suspect that these stories are covers for deals that are going on in the background 
Disney was probably brought into a smoky room at one point and said, look, we're going to give you a sizable chunk of Florida. You'll get whatever you want here, here, here. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. not, yeah, quite. No, no, no. Yeah. That sounds, they, I mean, yeah. Blauer talked about how the takeover of, of Orlando in that region was executed in a similar way to the way that they prevented a communist regime from taking over in Guatemala. They used the same playbook wow. for Disney Disney World as they did in Guatemala. Uh, so, so this is not so. You know, you're telling me that at the same time that the Disney company was was the propaganda wing for the United States government, uh, they were having financial problems. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Mm. I don't believe it. Okay, well, I'm going to listen to that. That sounds <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Uh, I know a bit about Disney. Well, we don't need to turn this conversation uh, it sounds like you already had the conversation so we will listen to it and recommend that our listeners i do a mean say, mickey mouse too you can hear me on the podcast oh okay i, I, I started out a little shy but by the end i was i was doing mickey i'm not gonna do it for this i'm not gonna do it for <laughs> no yeah you got that you gotta <laughs> listen. i gotta, you I gotta warm keep, up i gotta warm up to get into mickey and you gotta keep certain perks for your own podcast i'm allowed <laughs> to do i'm allowed to do mickey because i'm a quarter irish Right. You're not allowed <laughs> to do Mickey if you're not Irish. Exactly. But um, no, d- not to comment directly on the Disney stuff, but to go back to the issue of money and is it about money. Um, the other thing that it's important to at least touch on in a cursory manner is the manufacturing of taste. Because I think that no, um, no it's not about uh, what the, the decisions of like what gets greenlit, what gets made, what gets presented, what gets boosted. It's not all about money. But um, I'm also not so optimistic necessarily that like, oh, if only we made base stuff, we would get an audience. I do think there's a considerable degree to which these institutions uh, and the, the, the media of it all and the immersiveness of the Internet and the way that they have us by the balls and the Facebook of it all, the metaverse of it all, you know, the way that this stuff surrounds us and that we can't we can't escape the regime. They do, I think, manufacture people's tastes to a considerable degree, too. So I'd, sometimes it's like... Um, Oh, people want this diverse Marvel content, for example, and you know, I do think people go out to see that. But I also think that there's a considerable degree to which these companies are able, at this point, able to totally manufacture taste as well. So that's a little bit blackpilling, I suppose. No, but, but aren't I, I they think, aren't yeah. they already uh, weaving in entire uh, Mandarin subplots into some of these Marvel films that only screen over in China? Uh, this is my understanding. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, we're into something else entirely here. I mean, this is a this right. is a carnivalesque uh, kind of thing. Uh, I I do have the pleasure of tweeting occasionally with Walter Kern, and he'd be an amazing guest oh, like on your it. show. Oh if yeah, you yeah, get yeah, Walter like on that would be amazing. We try. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just did Tucker, so I mean, he's he's quite a mm-hmm. he's quite a get. But he's Love he's such a, well. oh yeah, brilliant writer, uh, very sensitive, and I'm very simpatico with him on Twitter, which I'm strange to find find myself living this way very bizarre um but he's he's a wonderful uh, man on there and uh, i just really appreciate his account he's very real and i think he lives in montana so i'm sure there's some of that mm-hmm. but um we I, I tweeted about him at one point about how twitter is a is a hall of mirrors it's a hall of fun funhouse mirrors that presents itself as a public square all these companies present as the public forum they're nothing. They are not at all a public forum. Your account is singular singular to you. I think they have their hands way more involved in what's throttled, what's not, what gets boosted, what doesn't, than anybody, yeah. anybody would be comfortable uh, accepting. And if you... Just look yeah. at what's, what's trending on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, it's, it's always 
sometimes you still see something slip through the cracks where it's like, oh, this actually might be trending. But a lot of it is like people are talking about how bad Trump was. People are talking about <laughs> yeah, right, how right. wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's like hashtag <laughs> hashtag P tapes. It's like it's 2021 and crime yeah. is out. I'm talking about what are you doing? Yeah, for sure. I, I have a concept for a political podcast that I may do at some point if my if my crypto gains are enough for me to never worry about uh, <laughs> getting getting uh, destroyed. Um, uh, uh, yeah, please yeah. wish me luck to the moon, um, or as we say in Floki, to the moob. Uh, that's that's a that's that's a whole thing. Um, shout out to Hydroad in the uh, Floki chat. I'll I'll let him know. I'll let Floki chat know about this episode. Um, okay. If you suddenly see a bunch of accounts with like horns and Vikings and shilling Floki, that you'll know it was this. Um, great. But they're a great community. It's really actually fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, what was I talking about? Oh goodness. Um, right. No. Uh, oh, the political podcast. I, I like the idea yes. of doing a show. Uh, called the like be like the dis, dis, uh, dystopia box something like that and it would be the Twitter trending and the LinkedIn trending be these hell boxes that sort of tell their own sort of horror stories every day you wake up what new fresh hell does Silicon Valley have for us today and you go on LinkedIn and it's like workers are quitting at a rapid pace you know uh, Amazon is uh, is uh, wants your blood <laughs> like, you know, it's just this horrific tabloid level garbage uh, that, that's thrown into our the other thing Twitter is is an interactive tabloid uh, but I thought a political podcast that would be quite fun would be to do like a daily uh, five days a week you just open up those two things and just run them down <laughs> with yeah. sympathetic oh, it's a great idea. Be fascinating wouldn't it uh, it'd also be really easy because there's no shortage of stuff to talk about. Sorry, Dan. Yeah, yeah. You already do those uh, tweets occasionally, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it does. Very funny and very, you know, compelling because it's right there. It's, you know, did you know that Joe Biden is the, the best guy in uh, the world? <laughs> and did you know that Kamala Harris is the smartest woman in the world? Unbelievable. And all, you know, yeah. all of that stuff. Oh, I mean, and poor Joe Biden, uh, my, my theory about his administration, I'm calling it the Wicker Man administration. I don't know if that's really taken off, but I'm going to keep saying it. I think we're watching a human sacrifice in real time. I think the, the, the contemporary Democratic Party is a bunch of goofy, dressed up, freaky pagans, not the centrists, but the, 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 the radical wing, which has sort of taken over the cultural arm of, of, mm -hmm. of the, the party. And they're just marching they love the theater of this senile, potentially demented old white man uh, on public display, literally falling apart every single day in the most public way possible. That's what they want. It's a feature, not a bug. He stands in mm -hmm. for the old, tired white America that means well, and he's a Catholic, and he was Obama's second. It's horrific to watch. Apparently, they're saying wow. he pooped himself at the oh, Vatican. God. They're saying he had a bathroom accident at the Vatican. That's one thing that you can always um, use as a, um, how to say this, you know the, the, the most elite wing of the regime's mind control uh, uh, kitchen cabinet, the people who really pull the strings when it starts to trigger um, basic Freudian stuff. That's their playbook. Yeah. And if you don't know the documentary, he's not a man of the right. He's, he's a man of the left. But if you know, don't know the documentary, uh, The Century of the Self, Adam of Curtis. Yeah, oh, you yeah, have course, to yeah. watch that. Yeah. Their playbook is all Freud. All Freud. And they still use it. It's Trump and the P-tape. It's what were we all freaking out about uh, with, with uh, COVID? 
toilet paper. They use all these poo-poo, pee-pee, basic, you know, root chakra crap to, to grab your attention, and that's how they mess with you, and that's how you know their they're evil little scriptwriters are behind it. That's one of my crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. That's rather striking, but no, I see where you're coming from for sure. I mean, I'd never even considered kind of that angle on the Biden thing. Uh, it's a distinctly darker angle, I would say. Well, that, when you accept yeah. that politics is show business for ugly people, uh, things, get, <laughs> things get a lot easier. Uh, and yeah. I'm, I'm nominally a Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. And I felt nothing but scorn and revulsion when, when Biden... Uh, when they installed Biden. And that's part of their program. They need to make something that as, as con, uh, as complex and as great and as historically rich as the Catholic church and put a corpse in to go to the Vatican from America. Uh, that's, that's very much what they want, uh, out of, out of this. And he is really only the second Catholic president in the United States history. And of course we know what happened to the first one. So we're watching, uh, we're watching a, a, an empty suit parade around nominally as a Catholic. It's all theater. It's all mind control. I'm pretty, I, okay, all right. I'm, I'm talking myself into a hole here. This is where the moderation yeah. stuff comes from, too. I do hold many of these opinions. Um, I just have, a, I, I do like to think I have a bit of sophistication about it. So, um, you know, uh, nobody has to worry about me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, crucially, yeah. Biden, like, there is that sick element but also there is, um, you know, he is a, a vessel through which they, they sell the regime ideas, which are, you know, truly um, uh, hateful and, you know, um, uh, ideas that, you know, many people would find, like if, if Kamala Harris said them, they'd be like, what the fuck? No, yeah. we're not. But when like old Joe Biden says like your your kid can have hormones because it's like that's, you know, it's that's something that you know goes over somehow it, it, it goes over okay i mean not not okay I, for many I, people but, i don't you know. know i don't know that it does and that's obviously a loaded issue i would just say if you what if joe biden is a burner presidency what if he's yeah. a burner yeah. no it, it, like a burner whether phone. no i i get what you're saying whether um whether by purposeful conspiratorial installation of a burner-style president or or not, um, I, I would say functionally that is what he is. I mean, people. I'm not that old, but people who were alive, uh, like in the 70s, Carter, to, you know, r r um, Carter. But also on the Republican side, Gerald Ford. Who mm. knows anything about Gerald Ford? I mean, he's the guy who what took over after Nixon um, was impeached uh, or resigned. Uh, so. He's one of these style presidents that I don't think is going to be remembered fondly or negative. To, well, he'll be remembered because of because of the um, strike, you know, the, the rather notable times during which he came to power. But um, as a president, uh, he yeah, he's, as you say, kind of this burner placeholder, placeholder, placeholder president. I think the I think the narrative that's going on is uh, for the left is. Obama was in office for eight years. He inherited a mess from the from the bad guys. Uh, the good guys didn't get in. We we uh, we suffered under Orange Man, uh, and now we're finishing the job before. I think that's their narrative. Uh, yeah, and yeah. you know who knows? Oh gosh, we're going to get into the Orange Man. Uh, <laughs> but they, I mean, he he drove them completely insane. 
Uh, I don't think. Oh yeah. I don't think Trump two would be a good thing for the record. Uh, but the Schadenfreude would be incredible. <laughs> so, but that's right. not why you should elect a president. That's not why yeah. you should vote for a man. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a certain amount of like pure uh, animosity between the two sides, where it's like you just want the other to see the other side suffer. And that's that's terrible. Certainly, they have it with us. Oh yeah, they right. feel yeah. the same way. I mean, they hate you and yeah. want you dead. They want your kids enslaved, yeah. and and they want you poor and broke and, and owning nothing. And while they're selling you some sort of weird dream of like a, a Scandinavian and Northern European style uh, socialism, but it, but none of the programs ever work out. The middle class just con- continues to get gutted. One of the things that I say is American liberalism is vaporware. It never arrives. It's yeah, just, yeah. we don't have health care. We don't have, it's just worse. Everybody agrees Obamacare is terrible. Uh, your kids are going to have have things worse than you, but we got to try to vote for Bernie. Like, what? What? Like, you know, anyway. Well, to bring it back to moderation, I mean, um, I, I think this, is, this isn't this is too much of a, a tangent leap here. I think it ties very much into politically what you're saying. One thing I, I was thinking about is, so... As you said, uh, moderation is a play that is could be open for interpretation, as all great art is. I, you know, we kind of, we could say it's right of center on certain issues, but you could also have a sort of more anti-corporate, left wing, or you know, in an economic classically left sense reading of the play. And uh, not to sound like a fucking Jacques Derrida guy talking <laughs> about readings of the play, but you sure, get what I'm saying. Sure. There's different interpretations of the play. Yeah. Uh, one thing I Dan I talked to Dan about this after we'd seen the play and we were preparing the notes for this, um, and also one of the interesting things on Twitter and this corner of Twitter we're talking about is that it's not just right wing Twitter. It's also uh, associated with you know the Red Scare crowd. Amy Tourette, Therese, uh, post left is another one of these dumb terms that who knows what it even means. But I'll just say post left, uh, you know, dirtbag left. It's the um, the combination of those two things: certain left wing considerations economically, and, and certain right wing considerations socially, so to speak. And um, I don't remember if the word dignity and the concept of human dignity is brought up explicitly into play in moderation. But I think that the concept of human dignity um, is rather operative when we're talking about the what is the connection between uh, some of these economically left-wing people and some of these socially conservative right-wing people what brings them together i think is a concern with the, you know people just normal people's ability to lead a dignified life and um there are certain economic uh corporate capitalistic threats to that and there's also uh, a hell of a lot of sort of socially progressive threats to that and i think that uh, moderation rather than being ideological it takes a look at two characters um who are in an extremely are in a line of work that um compromises their human dignity uh to an extreme degree uh you know talking about bio breaks and having their eye movements tracked and um I guess uh, j- just politically, you know, you talk about uh, the, the the vaporware of American liberalism and how it never deli- it, like it's it's this. That's what's so insidious about it. It promises it it's it presents itself as the party that is going to defend 
that basic dignity. We're always going to be increasingly. We're always going to be Sweden in four or five years. If we just vote for the right guy. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be Sweden in eight years. Yeah, but without exactly. Swedes, we're going to be an extremely diverse <laughs> Sweden. Suddenly, yeah. No, so it promises that, but never delivers upon that, and instead is beholden to all these kind of shadowy interests. And then, you know, the Republican Party is not great either, um, but at least it's not quite as shadowy in... Uh, right, you, the, yeah. the Republicans are the, are the guys who tell you tell you they want to bend you over. They just tell you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jesse Kelly's getting a lot of heat right now for his tweet about how he's going to kick his son out when he's 18. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the this is the normie right sort of conception of America mm-hmm. and of the reality of it. And in a way, he's he's brave to come out and say it because he, he knows he's going to get all sorts of heat. But it's a bit of um, kayfabe, too. I mean, he's just sort of is that how you say right. that word? Uh, that's a word that's going around. I quite like it. I mean, it's going into my lexicon. Uh, but that's our conservative when you're going to pull yourself in. It's just like, are you living in the same reality as, as I'm living in? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, I guess if you're part of the National Review panel and you're you're on a trust fund and you grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and you conceptually think the GDP going up is going to save us out here and fly over, I, I can understand this, but I mean, boy, that's not how the world works at all. Uh, so not helpful. The right doesn't have a very good narrative um, right now. Uh, right. Yeah. And it needs a new narrative. And I think, um, you know, not to be too grandiose or glib about it, but yeah, you know, it plays like moderation. Um, you know, it, it approaches that idea of, you know, just what it's like to be a human and just a normal average human working a job at this particular point in time in history. And, um, you know, you diagnose the problems and again, like mm-hmm. there's, there's certain left-wing, more economic considerations. There's a lot of more socially conservative considerations about how these characters are just totally atomized, uh, you know, totally atomized individuals. Um, so I, I, I tie the play in because uh, I don't think the play has this specific political ideology, but it shows rather than tells um, some of these issues that it would be good to see you know, politician and some of them, uh, people like Tucker Carlson, you know, I give props to for addressing them. Have, you yes. have me on your show, Tucker. I'll come on. Over. <laughs> oh, you, oh I, my, I know that, I, I know that Tucker like you is, oh God. Oh yeah. my God. Oh my, I'd have to do OPSEC. I'd have to, I'd have to get a security system or something. I'd have to, I'd have to bring my, my pillow onto that show and cuddle it. You know? <laughs> That's, it would be nerve wracking. Um, you'd be, you'd be a good Tucker. He's, guest, he's very interesting. Yeah. He's his yeah. Tucker. Tucker is very, very interesting. And uh, it is fun to be on Twitter and to very clearly know that his people are on that. Oh yeah, paying yeah, attention they, to they the get their storylines from mm-hmm. our sphere of Twitter. Yeah, they're in it. Yep. They're in it, and uh, very interesting. I appreciate that. I mean, moderation is called moderation for a reason, right? It's it, that word. It's operating, I think, at least on like five or six levels in terms mm-hmm. of what the play is, uh, and I don't want to live on the Jeff Bezos favela and then come home <laughs> to uh, to the metaverse. I don't want to plug my my children into the metaverse at the end of the day. Uh, there's a scene in one of the early Disney shorts where uh, uh, Mickey, it's Mickey's, uh, whether Mickey's or Donald's, I think it's Mickey's uh, trailer, right? Because people forget this. Mickey was a bit of a, 
shifty character at the beginning. Steamboat oh. Willie, he's kind of abusive and he's a trickster and he's a little bit of a Chaplin-esque kind of an outsider oh. character. Yeah, yeah, he's a trickster. Yeah. They only later made him a later later made him a family man. And Mickey's arc can uh, be seen to mirror the arc of Irish Americans in in uh, American um, popular culture and history. Mickey's a, an Irish name. He was an outsider when they made uh, when they created him. Initially, he was going to be called Mortimer, but uh, uh, Walt's wife just recoiled at that and and, and pitched <laughs> Mickey, and so it became Mickey. Um, but uh, in this in this Disney short, Mickey's in his um, camper van, his trailer camper van, and uh, the world is sun sunshiny and beautiful, and he's with you know his Donald's there, and all the animals are there, and. He's in this pastoral setting, and then he presses a button, and the camper van closes down, and it's you discover that he is he's camped himself in almost like a David Lynch nightmare industrial uh, slum zone, and uh, I think that's the reality they want to create for us, where we yeah. we zap ourselves into the Zuckerverse, right? But then in Meat Space, uh, unless we're part of the privileged elect, we're off to the Bezos uh, factory, yeah. and we have to oh, wear yeah. diapers while we're working. Absolutely. Hey, I don't know if this is uh, a go on. In, um, <laughs> in this world, um, in this world of you know this uh, regime mediated existence, what do you think is um, the the difference between the type and drilling down specifically into theater? What do you think the difference is when there were playwrights like David Mamet? like Neil Labute, as compared to some of the plays we see today, which are <laughs> more, uh, uh, shall go nameless, but uh, are uh, agitprop. Agitprop. Yeah. agitprop. And, yeah. you know, w what would you say the difference is, uh, not just, um, you know, superficially, but in terms of the story itself? Well, uh, they'll tell you themselves if you go into the graduate programs uh, or you read their writing about theater and what theater should do. They, well, many of them are just they're just Marxists. They're just communists or crypto communists, um, and it's in their writing. It's in what they study, uh, and they really believe things like uh, the hero's journey is some sort of uh, patriarchal expression of uh, systems of oppression, and so we have to move away from these stories about uh, single heroic figures doing heroic things. That's their thinking. Uh, yeah. They need we need to show more social um, innovation, and yet they always sort of come back to the great man's story. They can't help themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. But in the case of and let's just take all the racial questions out of this. But in the case of something like Hamilton, you're still watching a play about one of the founding fathers. You're still going back to the re-edification of this regime's founding mythologies, uh, and uh, yeah, the difference between those those things and um, not picking on Hamilton specifically, but the difference between those things and um, you know Mamet or Labute or whatnot are the it's the quality of the air that's left in the play for interpretation. You could even throw Sarah Kane into this, an atheist, lesbian, uh, English female playwright. Uh, these plays have enough room to allow multiple uh, interpretations, and they're not purely polemical. They're, they tend to be in conversation with the very nature of what theater is, which then in turn is in conversation with the very nature of what our humanity is. You cannot... I went on uh, Forest of Symbols recently, which is uh, another fine podcast. If, you, if you're not familiar with him, you should check him out. And uh, we talked a lot... Yeah, talked a lot about... Um, 
uh, theater. And uh, he led with this idea that he was sort of initially sold that film and television replaced theater. We don't need theater anymore. And I came back with my argument that like, well, if you want to understand Western civilization and the roots of film and television and how we conceive of the self and of the individual, it's inextricably bound with theater. So I would just say that the, the yeah. great plays interrogate our humanity and your humanity is so much more than whether you voted for Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah, I actually had a, a thought on uh, with regard to theater versus TV and movies and with regard to moderation. Um, one thing I hadn't seen a play or read a play in a long time um, before watching moderation this past week. And um, one thing that I, and this might hinge on a, a broader topic that I think Dan and I wanted to bring up. The one really striking element in moderation is how. Uh, a lot of the plays between you know dialogue between a man and a woman but when they are not having dialogue what you see is them giving a first person present narration on what they're seeing on their screens as they are moderating um you know facebook or not it's not facebook in the play but you know social media and seeing these horrific things like beheadings and you get the thing they, they say things like i am watching a beheading in a desert or and it's a very close first person present on their what they're seeing and how it's affecting them. They just kind of say it in a way that's really interesting. Um, and for me, that was a reminder of what theater can do that movies... It's not that movies and TV can't do it, but you just don't see it as much, which is this much... It's a more interior medium, so to speak, in general. there There is kind of meta TV where people break the fourth wall and stuff, but like... More so in theater, you really get these soliloquies um, that really show the interiority of a character. So just another thing I, I noted, uh, as, a, as a, a power that, that theater can have is kind of the, more the, the language. If we it. feel like we are in this uh, skirmish or this war with techno-capital and techno-capital is prohibiting us from expressing ourselves, theater is an extraordinary place to, to do it to still do it uh, because it does not take a heck of a lot of money to write a radio play and to produce a radio play. It doesn't take sure. a lot of money to do a reading of a play and to put it on, put it on zoom. It doesn't take a lot of money to rent the space down in St. Paul here and put on a little play when compared to a proper film production, uh, much less like a television yeah. type production. So theater, um, theater has a way, uh, this sort of punk poor theater that I, uh, admire this black box theater has a way of, um, hit punching above its, its weight. Uh, and, uh, the tradition and the techniques, uh, that's really when I cracked the play open that those, that first person I realized, Oh, that's going to work. I'm always trying to write my plays in such a, uh, such a way that, you know, two or three people, you know, somebody running the soundboard and a couple of actors on stage could run a very, very bare bones production of moderation. Uh, you wouldn't even need uh, a set in theory. You could do it. You could do this in a park. And if an audience was really engrossed, I think you could get the play across. And that and film and television, you can't do that. To what extent do you think the future of theater is the future of the theater that we care about, not the theater that is, you know, consonant with regime propaganda, the theater that is the actually telling a story that is engaging, that is thought provoking. To what extent do you think the future of that 
is in this kind of guerrilla theater, this dissident space where you're, you know, you're doing pod radio pods, you're doing zooms, you're doing like, to what extent is this the wave of the future? Yeah, I think it's, it's a little strange because we obviously did not, I did not my, uh, write moderation to be, to be done on Zoom. I don't yeah. think anybody had written their plays prior to uh, the, the happening, the great, the great uh, flu. <laughs> uh, I don't think that anybody was, was writing, and yet my play, for better or worse, sort of is served in a funny way by that medium but it's not meant to be on Zoom. I'm glad we're doing this Zoom reading in December, December 6th, moderationplay.com. I'm glad uh, that, that it's happening. It's nice that people are taking it an interest, but it's meant to be live and real and in person. And in fact, that's the meaning of the play is that you have to sit with these characters in physical space. Uh, and I, I can't wait until it gets a world premiere hopefully at one of the most fabulous theaters in the world, right? Uh, I can't sure. wait until London starts calling. Uh, and the, um, or New York. Uh, but I can't wait until opening night or press night and it's over and everybody whips their phones out, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's this sort of, that tension lives inside of that play. Now, to answer your question, I, I don't know because we're all reeling from it. In a funny way, 2020 worked in my favor because I'm a very online guy and a lot of people who hitherto would have been uh, more normie types, like a little less online, were driven online. Uh, and so I'm waiting there like the spider for the fly. It's like, oh, well, you want to do more of my weird internet play? All right, let's go. Do you know? So uh, I think that if you have something to say there now, the least of your problems is the media or the medium, right? You can, you can write a radio play. You can do a podcast. Anybody with a laptop and a microphone can get started doing something. Uh, I don't think that you can ever crush this spirit of dissident fringe uh, aggressive theater. When you think about Sarah Kane, uh, she would be accused of being a leftist at the time, left-leaning, but yeah. it's neither here nor there. She was dumping these plays into the middle of Sloan Square in the most Tony part of one of the most Tony cities in the world uh, and, and throwing war zones onto the stage and forcing these people, uh, some of the wealthiest, uh, most well-heeled people in the world to sort of confront the darkest uh, side of of humanity and what a, what a tr truly transgressive, truly wonderful um, uh, theatrical expression. We'll always need this. I think about Václav Havel and how he became the president of the Czech Republic, uh, having started as a as a playwright. And you know, America will never uh, be like a theater first country. I talk about no. this on Force <laughs> of Symbols. You know, we think in terms of film and television. Uh, I'm writing screenplays. I've got some very um, I'm some screenplays that I'm quite proud of, and hopefully one day we'll be able to uh, produce one of these um, one of these uh, screenplays. And awesome. uh, yeah, fun that I write with Abby, uh, my very good friend. But uh, I just think as long as people want to get together in a room and see theater, uh, there's an opportunity for us to sort of kind of get the jam the crowbar into the culture and make just enough room so we can start to breathe. And then I think you, you'd be surprised um, how these things start to have an effect, uh, almost like a magical effect with a K. You reach yeah. one person, you reach one person, you change the world. And I think that what we do with theater 
has the potential to be as impactful as something like Squid Game, even though everybody's talking about Squid Game, what, what effect really does it have? And Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that there is a path from this kind of dissident space back onto Broadway at some point in, I'm not going to say the, the short term, obviously that's not the case, but you know, maybe there's a few stops here and there. There's, you know, um, uh, an independent theater company in, uh, say, uh, you know, Minnesota. And, <laughs> um, and from there, like, I, you do see rumblings, not necessarily in the theater industry, but you do see rumblings online. Like, I, I know that uh, uh, the, the writer with the Twitter handle, Lomez, is trying to do a, uh, a fiction uh, and, I think, poetry uh, contest. And for, for the type of fiction that can't really be published today. And I, I think that, you know, theater should be part of the conversation that we should I think have. You're absolutely. I think you're talking about passageprize.com. Yes, I, exactly. I I heard you you got it better than I do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, which I just heard, I just heard about on the, on the bird website. Uh, you're absolutely right. And if we seed, and this is part of the problem that uh, the, the right in America has, is that they've seeded the cultural territory almost entirely for 50 yeah. years. And it's absolutely a crime. Uh, you know, theater, and it just stinks of all this, like, oh, but it's like, and then you go over to England, and it's this rich part of the culture, and they think about it in a completely different way. And you begin to see how important it is, and how it moves culture and drives narratives. One of the other things on that exchange with Jesse Kelly that happened, I saw some fellow, some anon account replied to him, um, uh, you know, suggesting that there is room for anon accounts. We need this. We need to be able to speak freely. And in this climate, um, yeah. many, many people don't feel able to. Well, then some account wrote back to him in a snarky way and said, "You write, you write science fiction. You're writing a science fiction novel. That isn't exactly something that builds civilization." And I wrote back and I said, novels do build civilizations. Plays do build civilizations. Absolutely. Uh, you can't think about the, the modern idea of Spain or the Spanish without Don Quixote. You think about modern, uh, the sort of modern German sphere, German speaking sphere without uh, Faust. Absolutely. These, 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 are not, uh, these are not the cart, these are the horse. Uh, so that, that's such a narrow-minded way of looking at things, and, I, and I'm afraid that um, right-leaning people really suffer from this. This idea that, like, in America, to be an, an appreciator of the arts is somehow a left-wing thing, it, that has to go. That, has to, uh, that, that, that idea has to go to the birds. It's, it's, it's got to go away. And, and not to the Twitter birds, but to the, uh, the vultures who will <laughs> yeah, uh, we got, yeah, we the idea. Throw, yeah, I mean, look, if you're, you have all these like boomer cons and all these, uh, these normie, normie cons who can't figure out like, why have we lost the culture? Why did it happen so quickly? Well, it's like you just focused on going to your church. You, you made an unholy alliance with the neoconservatives. You lost two, two really unpopular wars and you completely <laughs> ceded the entire cultural sphere to crypto Marxists. And now yeah. you can't figure, and you laughed at artists and called them whatever, you, you sort of mocked them and, and left that whole arena to these other lunatics on the other side of the aisle, and now there's nothing in the middle left. So in a funny way, the project right now is to reclaim the middle. And, and as far as Broadway goes, the way that that's, that's going to happen is, one, straight plays, like, it's very, very hard to get straight plays to Broadway for any meaningful length of time. 
Mamet, Mamet writes about this in, um, I think it was the theater of this book. And he was talking about how the theater that he knew that everybody grew up with, which was dominantly a middle-class Jewish theater in New York City, uh, there was Jewish people and it was cultural and middle-class and that's gone, right? It's been Disneyfied and commercialized and all the rest of it. Um, but he also made the point that that argument is like being the grumpy old guy complaining about the, the olden days, right? And yeah. he, he very wisely in that, in that book makes the point that there's going to be something that the kids are doing that to them will be their own golden age. And, and it may be happening on, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun theatrical weird stuff going on in uh, crypto around like memes and memes, oh, yeah, yeah. meme tribalism and meme war, man. <laughs> and all of that, that stuff has a lot of theatricality in it. And, um, but I do think that there will always be this irrepressible hunger for the pure theatrical form of people who go into a space and see live performance, especially now after the before times uh, or, or after, after what happened, right, after COVID. Um, uh, there's going to be a hunger for that. And as people... Absolutely. Yeah, I think we can reclaim that space. But it's going to happen through celebrities attaching themselves to what are perceived to be serious plays. If you can get a celebrity, uh, if... Um, uh, this is awful, but if Alec Baldwin decides he doesn't want to work on movies for a minute, and it's too soon to say that, but that's what pops into my head. If Alec Baldwin says, yeah. I want to do some theater, uh, and he attaches himself to a play, that that's enough to drive the play oh, 100%. forward. Because yeah. we have a celebrity culture. That's the reality of it. But um, you know, plays, will, plays do have the advantage of being considered serious in America. Yeah. Often it's so unearned, serious. But... Yeah. Did you say inert? Uh, uh, no, well, yes, inert as well, but I said often unearned. Right, um, right, right, right. And yeah. when it comes to um, the the right or the the center or whoever, whoever is not regime approved, taking back this space, I have a feeling it will not be Ben Shapiro's musical. Have you, uh, <laughs> it, so he wait, supposedly is, wants to write a musical. Does he? What does he want to write? I don't know exactly. I, I just I heard it, um, you know, mentioned somewhere, yeah. and um, yeah, I mean, and that more generally, if you, I, I find if you approach um, normies or, or what have you about dissident art, what they will come back with is, oh yeah, like um, you know Ben Shapiro's production company or mm. something of of that nature, and it's hey, like look, that's it, yeah. It's like that's not what we're talking about. Right. It, no, it, it isn't necessarily. I, I like the idea of like Internet Grifter the musical. That would be really <laughs> funny. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, BoomerCon the musical. Uh, the um, Hey, and look, if that, if that production company is looking for scripts and wants to do something clever and interesting, uh, you know, shout out. I'm not, you know, reach no, out. True, my true. Slide into my DMs. My DMs <laughs> are open. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think this stuff has to emerge naturally, and uh, the culture that we've created and that we're a part of online—this new vernacular, all the new slang, all the fun terms, the way crypto dovetails into uh, everything, the way that Frog Twitter dovetails into everything—and they have these like interlocking pieces—is uh, delightful and. Our challenge, I think in many ways, it's very similar to Walt Disney's challenge. <laughs> I've got Disney <laughs> on the brain, you can tell. But our challenge is to bring that vision that we have of the world in digital into the material world. 
and I think that that theater is very explicitly that. So if we're in this bird website ghetto talking to each other, that's important. And that, that Sam is dot, that, that, that's important. We have to do that. We have to pump each other up. We have to support each other. We have to let each other know you're not alone. You're out there. You're, you're experiencing this same bizarre thing that I am and you're not atomized. You're yeah. a part of something. This is one of the things that meme coins are do a very good job at. If you buy a meme coin right now and you get into the Telegram chat, you can immediately become part of this, commu this community and this tribe and feel like you have a stake in it. And yeah. people are hungry for that, ex that experience. Um, yeah, well, I, the musical I want to write, and I talked about this on Forest of Symbols, I want to write Killdozer, the musical. That would I be wanna, awesome. I want to make a musical about Marvin Hemeyer. I want to do a, a musical number where he's in his hot tub in Colorado, in Granby, Colorado, and I want God to do a duet with him about how he can <laughs> <laughs> make the killdozer. That has built-in merch. It has a built-in audience. And look, uh, Book of Mormon. True. Very, very good. Very intense. Very much not cathedral media, not regime media. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's room for it. And if anybody wants to help me put together and produce Kildos or the musical, reach out because I have some ideas. We, uh, we may be in touch with you on that, uh, <laughs> Kevin. Yeah, and, do it. Uh, and Book of Mormon, crucially, uh, that would be another example of um, where you have a popular musical that is critical of uh, or, or pokes fun at the right from a a writers who are sympathetic and i think you kind of need to and that's kind of what i did in my novel it is a, a satire of uh, a figure on the right and you know made up figure not a real person but in order to actually access something that's a sympathetic portrayal like you you have to have sympathy for the person and i i don't want to put words in your mouth but it sounds like you do have some sympathy for mr killdozer and uh, you would do him justice in this play. Look, Marv Hemeyer is a fellow who looks like he could have been a distant cousin of mine from <laughs> South Dakota. And uh, I know, I feel like I know this guy. I yeah. feel like I grew up around the milieu, such as it is, that this guy comes from. And much like, much like Marv, I too moved from one of the Dakotas to a more purpley uh, state. I didn't move to Colorado, I moved to Minnesota. Yeah. And the politics are wildly different, the cultures are wildly different, but it's in the same region and you kind of sound the same. So you, you're, and nobody's um, gonna give you the lay of the land. Nobody's gonna tell you, this is how we do things out here. They're gonna let you fall on your face a million times. Yeah. Uh, that was very much my experience in Minnesota. I'm sure I was awful too. You know, you're a young man, you're flailing around, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, but Marv went to Colorado and he just never fit in, never uh, got on the right side of the right people in that town of Granby. And he was, what What did, what did they say on Killdozer Day? It was a, a one man pushed to his limits, pushed too far. <laughs> and uh, I, I like the idea that he, he wakes up in limbo uh, and uh, he has amnesia. He doesn't remember why he made the killdozer. And Ronald Reagan is there uh, to uh, to Ronald Reagan is his Virgil uh, to remember <laughs> why. And there's Ronald Reagan is feeding him hallucinogenic jelly beans. Uh, it's just an idea. I don't know. But but how, how cool would like a like a uh, an outlaw country industrial metal musical about 
the Killdozer be? How I just I can I'm see it board. in my mind's eye. Uh, yeah. This yeah. is, this is oh, yeah. great. <laughs> it uh yeah, yeah. Uh, i want to see it in uh the well, what's a big theater uh the, the broad i think the broad yeah. something I, don't know. I i gotta do it I, you know my my writing schedule right now is funny because i'm uh i'm finishing a, a screenplay with abby this the, the screenplay is called doug must die and this is about a uh a would-be life coach who moves from la her her uh her fiance gets eaten by a shark she moves from L.A. It's comedy. Like, like uh, you do. Yeah. Like yeah, like you do. By a shark. yeah. Yeah. She moves from L.A. to Austin, Texas to uh, become a life coach. Her guru invites her out there uh, to be, you know, a full time life coach. And her first client uh, turns out to be an agent of death who works for the IRS, but doesn't know that he's an agent of death. Uh, and uh, so it's called Doug Must Die, and then all the and then the life hmm. coaches start dying one by one, you know, around her. <laughs> so it's a comedy. I'm working on that, and then I'm, I, I do want to adapt moderation into a um, into a screenplay. I've got a buddy out here. It's just I, I love the theater. You can tell I love the theater. I want to make theater. I want to make that musical. I want to do all these different things. Uh, but this buddy of mine is like, man, you gotta you, you gotta yeah, take that. Well, the iron saw. Yeah, and so we may, I might adapt that into a screenplay, and then it might be something we just do ourselves. We just get a quarter of a million dollars together and just do it out here like over a month, you know. It, it wouldn't take that much, and if we get a good director, True. good actors, it's something we could, we could put together and maybe make something cool, yeah. The intention would be a film for moderation? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I would need to adapt it. I would need to add like a B story and flesh out some things, but I think it's something that could be done with very little overhead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a film, so it's more than theater, but nevertheless, it's a very low budget. Film. Correct. So, yeah. And I think I agree that it would be fantastic. Um, in that case, I guess you'd have to move away from possibly move away from the first person narration and actually show some so show some computer screens on TV. But yeah. I think it could be amazing. I think with the right director, if we really yeah. set out to make something that was filmic, with the theatrical foundation there's some really fabulous uh, film adaptations of plays uh, amadeus is one of oh, the greatest sure. play, uh, films of all time sure. uh glengarry glenn ross uh, dynamite but you have to really rethink it in terms of the the film medium uh, right yeah i think it would be fun to do so we'll see um could be interesting. neil labute famously someone who yeah. has a, a foot in both worlds and i was shocked to find that in the company of men wasn't a play first because or maybe it was maybe i'm wrong it, i think it might have been i don't i'd have to look it up yeah but i mean like all of his films have that quality of like clearly this uh could easily be done on the stage and you know and has the added benefit of something like that as a low overhead so yeah i have a group of friends who are all like-minded and uh if you're ever in flyover here you ever visit uh minnesota uh you're welcome to join us we do uh every two weeks on a friday we have a buddy this is the same guy who's urging me to do the screenplay adaptation who has pretty fabulous place between here in stillwater minnesota kind of out in the woods and everything and but he has a, his living room has a screen He's got the projector. And so we screen all these classic movies and oh, wow. we do like a round where one of us picks the movie. We just did Mean Streets. Before that, we did Withnal and I, the great uh, English movie. A lot of Americans don't know that movie, but if you don't know that and you're a theater person, you have to watch Withnal and I. Go out of your way to find Withnal and I. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, and and then so and then and then before that it was Easy Rider, and we just were going through and doing this. My my friend Dan picked a very unusual movie, but which was very inspiring to me as kind of a DIY uh, film. Have you heard of this uh, film, um, Sound of My Voice? Have you heard of this? No. I, you might check it out. There's a woman named Britt Marling. Have you heard of Britt Marling? She she and her group got really embedded at Sundance and uh, for a few years, and they made this movie i think on just like a dirt dirt cheap uh budget like low no budget but it's all about the psychology of a cult and uh it's it's one of those movies that yeah the budget was one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. wow right and but i'm getting chills when i'm talking about it because it's like is it a great movie is it the shining no but is it a thought-provoking artful exploration of psychology and cult psychology yes and that we can do this guys <laughs> you know what i mean like and this is if if i've learned anything from art of darkness this past year uh it's that going over these lives of these great artists uh many of them they just do it they don't take no like kubrick made his first movie uh he got money together from like a dentist in the bronx like friend family friend gave him money he took all his actors out to California, made a film call, uh, called, oh, darn, now the name escapes me. I have to look it up. But he, he made this film out in California, nearly killed his actors uh, with some ga- like chemical gas, was trying to create a gas effect. But he did it. He did it. And then five years later, he was directing Spartacus. Wow. And so you just, there's a willpower that these artists have. And so in a funny way, I think that's one of the things we're looking for in this show is like, how did they do it? Oh, they did. They just did it. <laughs> They're not waiting yeah. for these administrators to anoint them and do it. They had to. It was just in them. And um, I mean, I think that to an extent is what unites all artists, because like as Matt and I were talking, uh, you know, many times, you know, art, producing art, it's not something that necessarily really serves any real benefit in your material life but it serves a spiritual benefit. So it's like, well, you know, if we spend X amount of time doing a podcast, if we spend X amount of time writing a novel, will this ever make us any money? Doubtful. But uh, will, will this be something that we like doing and have fun doing? Of course. And will this be something that, you know, we just, we have to do because we, we have this yeah. vision and this, this voice that like, you know, I, I would never, I, it sounds, uh, you know, you know, try hard or whatever, but I wouldn't be happy in my life if I never wrote that novel. I, I just I had to write it. Yeah. Yeah. What, no. And I yeah. think when you feel that need to do it, um, I think that's how, you know, it's something good. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. What's the novel called? Uh, so it's called Nutcranker. It, uh, <laughs> I, uh, cool. I, I describe it as a, a modern day uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, uh, cool. Hence my, uh, you know, asking about a Art of Darkness pod for John Kennedy tool because I'm a fan. And I kind of thought like, well, who would Ignatius J. Riley be today? He'd be some edgelord in Brooklyn who's like, you know, totally, you know, un- unable to interact with people socially and uh is you know some sort of incel uh et cetera et cetera and he'd be uh like a once every four months guest on come town yes yeah <laughs> drag this and, uh, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 the butt of a nick mullen joke 
Yeah, yeah, Nick Mullen. What a, he's one of the funniest people alive. Absolutely. Yeah, Funny. Nick and uh, Sam Hyde. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, podcasts are great. And the, the resurgence of comedy as a reactionary medium or a reactionary like uh, uh, art form is, is really outstanding. Like, jokes are right wing now. <laughs> like, yeah. what? Right. Like, yeah. It's just like, what are you talking about? That's, that's how you know you're on the wrong side of things when humor is like too much on <laughs> your side to handle. It's like you really got to just unclench your asshole and kind of relax a little bit. <laughs> um, I just saw Doug Stanhope at uh, the Mall of America. Fantastic. Oh, wow. I love yeah. Doug. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, we actually, we were walking to get dinner and if you've ever been to the Mall of America, I'm not pronouncing it correctly because it's the Mall of America. Um, it's, it's a circle. And so you walk around, you can just walk in endless loops around the mall on like five, six levels, right? It's obscene. Um, but uh, we were going to get dinner and Doug and his entourage were coming the other way and he had half his face painted. And I was like, hey, Doug. And he goes, hey. Uh, and then I'm like, you know, happy Halloween. And then he, he's walking a few steps behind me and he's like, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> and, and then in a few more steps, he's like, or I'm going the wrong way, I don't know. He's, he was great, he, he crushed it. And um, yeah, I love that guy. I've seen him now in four towns, uh, just a real, you know, comedian's comedian. And uh, all those podcasts, what an amazing time in terms of, we, we, we just have lived through this renaissance of like the radio, yeah. like old timey radio. Oh, yeah, come yeah. Back. I love it. No, that's a whole nother topic. I mean, some people say there's too many podcasts and when, when everyone, you know, is making a podcast, you sort of get why they say that. And yet I really, really believe in the medium. I mean, uh, starting perhaps with Joe Rogan, I don't even listen to that much Joe Rogan, but nevertheless, you know, he, he's kind of one of the, um, maybe the, one of the, more mainstream progenitors of this it's just it's a medium where you really go in depth with the guest as opposed to everything else in the culture um with the internet but even the way tv has pretty much always been is these quick sound bites and um i think podcasts podcasting yeah it's kind of a rebirth of, of a certain kind of radio and it's um it's you know for, for people who actually like more in depth intellectual one-on-one yeah in depth is the main the main concept here beyond the superficial for people who like that content i think podcasting has really been a way to take some of that space back so to speak. yeah i think rogan is a phenomenon obviously and incredible yeah. and uh he's the bro oprah he's the bro yeah. oh yeah so that's a good one <laughs> yeah bro-pra. he's the bro yeah. uh and good we needed it we need that the that was he was he's clearly fulfilling some sort of a need and uh acting as a kind of mirror. And uh, I don't, I don't tune into him regularly, but if there's a guest who comes on, who's who I want to hear from, uh, if he, if there's a sensational episode, uh, I'll definitely tune in and it's free. I mean, talk about populism, talk yeah. about reaching the masses and, and uh, Absolutely. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. And look, I, I would never get this discouraged. I mean, we, we make fun of ourselves a little bit sometimes about, I think we talked about this on the recap episode of Out of Darkness. It's like, yeah, it was the beginning of 2020 and we decided there weren't enough podcasts where a couple <laughs> of guys talk. <laughs> you have to have a sense of humor about it. Right. And these right. things operate on the, the Pareto principle. It's like anything else. You don't have an audience. You don't have an audience. You don't have an audience. Then you break through and you do something exactly. right. You find a format, you find a need. Um, and even if you don't break through to the level of a Rogan or even like one of these tier two, if you can find your niche and, uh, again, move people, um, that, I mean, what more can you ask for in this world? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Finding your audience, finding mm -hmm. people who want to hear what you want to say. Like as a writer, that's what you, you know, that's what you dream for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you fellows are making room for this too, because again, we have this, um, I think maybe Matthew, you had um, checked out briefly uh, when I said this, but um, I told, told Dan earlier that it's just so bizarre that the idea that to be like a supporter of the arts in America is seen to be somehow like a left-wing thing. It's so strange. Yeah. What a bizarre way of seeing the world and of seeing politics. Uh, and so we've got to change that. That has to, we've got 100%. to sort of, it, it needs to at least be value neutral, <laughs> yeah. not some sort of, no. yeah. Mm -hmm. that definitely a part of our mission. Um, and before we wrap and, uh, um, yeah, I do apologize. My, my computer just froze and I had to do a hard, like it was a whole thing. So I, I didn't, I didn't mean to check out. My handler got that. to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. They, they shut me down. He's saying too much. But, uh, He's talking about the mouse. <laughs> Matt dispatched him, yeah, though, yeah. as you can see, now that he's back. <laughs> Situation neutralized. But, um, oh, so apologies if this already got said, but um, before we wrap, definitely uh, give us the details on where moderation is premiering virtually again, because um, I, I, it's the December 6th, right? Yeah, December 6th. Uh, 6th it's going to be uh, at moderationplay.com. I keep that updated all the time. My website too, it's kevinkautzman.com. It's K-A-U-T-Z-M-A-N.com. Uh, I keep that, that current. I'm on the Bird website. It's just my name. Uh, but the details for uh, the moderation reading are at the Blank Theaters website. You can simply Google that. Or again, if you go to those websites I mentioned, it's it's there. It's the kind of the number one theatrical thing I have going on right now. And we're doing something a little different with that. Uh, we're going to begin rehearsing for it soon. It's going to be a Zoom reading. It will not be a live. We, we will be streaming it, but it will be a pre-recorded um, event that we're going to create. And so it's not just going to be people at music stands reading the play. We're going to try to do something that's a little more elevated with it. Um, Two fabulous actors. One is Michael Backinson, who I who I mentioned before, who worked on moderation with Spooky Action, or rather with um, the Up Theater in Manhattan. He worked on that, and then I have Amanda Forstrom, who's a friend of mine, who worked on the Spooky Action reading. But they've not worked together on the play, so they've both done separate readings of the play publicly prior. Now. I've decided, we've decided, ooh, let's put these two together and see what happens. Uh, and since she was living in DC, Amanda has moved back to Minnesota and we're whispering about possibly starting a theater company here back in Minnesota, but that's to be determined and we're thinking about doing it possibly next year, purely for the tax breaks. <laughs> well, we, we would all benefit from that. So I, I wish you luck in that and I hope you do. Yeah, and uh, look, I mean, if you're really serious about the Killdozer musical and anything else, you know, slide into my DMs. I'm always, I'm always open. I'm interested in chatting about it. Definitely. I'm halfway, yeah, I'm halfway into a new play about the opioid crisis um, and crypto, and a woman who goes to the dark web to hire an assassin to kill a pharmace pharmaceutical executive. Oh wow! And, you know, something kind of fun, fun and lighthearted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so hopefully I can finish that. And um, I hope you too, I, you know, I, I hope I haven't uh, talked too much. I mean, obviously it's a podcast, no, not at all. so that's like the whole. We, we want hope, you to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you two are, are finding, you know, inspiration in your own writing as well. Um, do you find that working on this show feed like sort of creates a virtuous loop for you with your own, your own work? I Definitely. Do, yeah. um, you want to? 
So some yeah, the ideas that get kicked around are definitely an inspiration. And then even just, you know, all all you know, we we a lot. Well, you Kevin are, are much bigger than than Dan and I, which is um to your credit. But uh, you know, we don't have big audiences for what we're writing. But this show is a reminder that you know we have a social circle. Yeah, if not a full on paying audience we have at least a, a a social circle of incredibly smart and creative people um for whom we can you know present our work and talk about it uh and i think yeah so both in terms of finding material inspiration for our work but then also just um the social aspect of art i feel like is a big part of this podcast yeah and i would say uh see about getting my pal brad kelly on at some point he oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. brad um mm -hmm. yeah. brad sent me his book a while oh, ago great. i admit i haven't read it i got a big old stack of books yeah, like many yeah, of us yeah. have i will read it though and we will we will have brad on yeah 100%. yeah yeah you gotta have my podcast husband on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man but that's great i really appreciate you guys having me so i'm Definitely happy to come can. on anytime you know let's uh, i hope you can you can make that uh premiere of modern Generation and uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah really, yeah. really enjoyed this. Making time to just talk about real things and uh, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it <laughs> was Thanks great, so much, Kevin. Kevin. Awesome. Thank you. All right, fellas, take care. All right. Bye.